because they want to dismiss the future reign of Christ, because they have a whole system of theology that's built on the fact that the church is the new uh, Israel, so to speak. They think, well, there's just this one big general judgment when people of all time are brought before, and they think that's what's happening, but they haven't read very carefully or studied very hard. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the daily Bible teaching program of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 20 of the Revelation and have been looking at Jesus' second coming, the defeat of the devil, and the millennial reign of Christ. Today, from verses 11 to 15, we'll be looking at two different types of judgment in a message entitled, The Destiny of the Doomed. The book of Revelation is really the conclusion to the Bible. Remember the word revelation, apocalypsis in Greek, means to unveil or to uncover. And so in some of our English Bibles, the title is The Apocalypse, and rightly so. This is an uncovering of Christ, and it's the last book of the Bible, and it really describes the final consummation of all things for both the believer and for the unbeliever. Revelation, as you study it, (laughs) we've been in it for a while, I know, but we're nearing the end. We're just a few months away. It will capture your attention. It will stir your imagination. It will point you to the grand and glorious end that God has for His people. But sometimes, like the topic this morning, the destiny of the doomed, it will cause you to be quiet and to be still and to think hard. Sadly, today in evangelicalism, the doctrine of eternal retribution, the doctrine of hell, has virtually disappeared from the pulpit. And most people don't view it as a real, literal, actual place of torment. The word hell is more often used as a swear word, or sometimes it is used to describe difficulty where we say he or she is going through hell. When I began pastoring this church nearly 30 years ago, 86% of Americans believed in a literal, actual hell. According to Pew Research, it's dropped to 54%. And the younger in age, amongst millennials, only 21%, and among Generation X, only 16%. But if you could survey all the demons that are functioning and at work in the world, according to the gospel, 100% of all the demons would affirm that hell is a real, literal place of eternal punishment. But pastors don't preach on it. It's considered almost rude and offensive unpopular and impolite to even mention it. Now, you may think that the doctrine of hell is something that you don't like, and therefore a pastor should not preach on. Listen, I don't like war and murder and poverty and racism and child abuse, but my liking of it does not change the reality of it. Hating to die and go to hell doesn't change the fact that you should know what God says about this doctrine of hell. Now, I hear some pastors speak about hell, and they almost seemingly take delight in it. I take no delight in the doctrine of eternal retribution any more than God does. He desires none to perish but for all to come to repentance. But I will preach on it because God has commanded me to preach on the whole counsel of Scripture. And so we come to the next paragraph here in our verse-by-verse exposition of the doctrine of hell as we look through the Revelation. Now, as born-again Christians, 
We need to know what God says. And if we really understand the doctrine of eternal retribution, your heart will be filled with a sense of compassion towards those people that you know and love and those whom you will meet. Christ is coming back. He is going to bring about the consummation of all things. There's over 300 references in the New Testament alone to his return. And when he comes, the Bible is clear, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said in the last chapter of the Revelation, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And then the final thought comes from the lips of Jesus where he says, Yes, I am coming quickly, to which John says, Amen, meaning I believe it. And then he says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. But not everyone believes what God has plainly said. One megachurch pastor denies hell, his book being reviewed in the New York Times best-selling book list, said, quote, that hell only makes people's stomachs churn and their pulses rise. I need to tell you this morning, by the time I'm done, your stomach may be churning and your pulse may be rising, but that's not always bad. It's a good thing to be confronted with truth. And then you have these liberal theologians who deny the truth of Scripture altogether. They just write off the doctrine of hell. But that doesn't totally surprise us either because Jesus taught, as did the apostles in their letters, that at the end of time, this would become a prevalent position. Paul, for instance, said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Hey, listen, these are exciting days in which to be alive. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son. And even if you know just a little bit of prophecy, you can see what is happening in our day and our lifetime. But when He comes the second time, it's going to be so different from His first coming. He came the first time as a Savior. When He comes again a second time, He will come as a judge. He came the first time in humiliation. He'll come again with great exaltation. He came the first time as a suffering servant. When he comes again, the Bible teaches he will come as a sovereign king. He came the first time to save sinners. He'll come again to judge sinners. He came the first time as a sower in grace. He will come again as a reaper with great wrath. When he comes again, there'll be no tree to hang upon, but there'll be a throne that he'll sit on. When he came the first time in poverty to a cross, it will be so different because he is coming again in majesty, the Bible says, in the clouds in glory. They mocked him. They put a reed in his hand. They mockingly said he was a king. But he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will come a second time with a rod of iron. And our passage this morning unfolds for us one of the things that he is going to do. So we need to pay close attention to what God says. I hope you brought a Bible, Revelation chapter 20, beginning this morning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. For those joining us for the first time and for the benefit of the rest of us, let me set the context of where we are in this long study of the Revelation. The opening chapter in the seventh verse gives us the theme to the book that he is coming in the clouds with great might. That's the theme of Revelation, the return of Jesus from heaven. And just so we would not mess up the Revelation, God also gave us a divine outline as this chart reveals. It's based on Revelation 1.19. John is instructed by Jesus, therefore write the things which you have seen. That's the past. And so he writes of the glorified Christ in heaven, there in his exalted, wonderful, magnificent body. We'll study that some more as we work through the last two chapters. Then he writes the things that are, things that are present. And he speaks of seven literal functioning churches that in many ways are representative of the blessings and challenges that churches have faced throughout the age. And then he is to write about the things which will take place metatata, after these things. And so beginning in chapter 4, there is a turning point all the way through the end of the book where the consummation of all things are described. So the Christ is described in the opening chapter, the church in chapters 2 and 3, and then the church does not appear again until the second coming of Christ because the church is not present during the time of the great tribulation. And just so we wouldn't miss it, The outline closes with the words, after these things. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, we read, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Metatata, after these things. Now, if you remember, this is what we call the rapture. A door is opened up in heaven. And the church is caught up. And again, that's why the church is not mentioned again until the second coming of Christ. And what begins to unfold, especially beginning in chapter 6 all the way through the 18th chapter, is the judgments that God is going to bring upon the earth during that time. When we come to chapter 22, we'll look at five reasons why God is going to allow the great tribulation period to unfold upon the earth. But seven years of absolute horror will take place, and men will despise it so much they'll want to die, but the Bible says they won't be able to. Death will flee from them. He writes during this time of a bottomless pit where millions of demons are unleashed across the planet. He'll write of this one world leader called the Antichrist and his compatriot, the false prophet, who will rule the earth and blaspheme the Lord Jesus. And then, as we studied in the 19th chapter, he writes of the battle of the Armageddon, when all the nations of this world will turn under the sway of the Antichrist and seek to go against the people of Israel. So Jesus is first coming for us. Jesus said in the upper room, where he really unfolded the doctrine of the rapture. He said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am... You may be also, where is the Lord Jesus right now? He's in heaven, and he's coming back for his saints. We will meet him in the air, and he will take us to heaven. But that is a distinctly different event from the second coming where he comes to the earth. 
And so in Revelation chapter 19, we saw what happens when Jesus comes to the earth, how he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And then in chapter 20 through 22, he begins to unfold for us what will happen after that return. And so when you come to chapter 20, the second coming of the Lord Jesus has already taken place. He promised through the Old Testament prophets that the Christ, the Messiah, will rule and reign on the earth. The length of it being a thousand years is a New Testament doctrine, but the fact of it is covered throughout the Old Testament prophets. And so now here in the immediate context in verses 11 through 20, the millennial reign of the Messiah is over, and God is about to judge all the lost people of all time. One group will find themselves eternally in heaven by this point, but the other group, those present at the judgment we're going to study today, will find themselves eternally in hell. And so the first six verses, if you remember, describe the fact that uh, Satan and his compatriots first are bound at the beginning of the millennium, the false prophet, he is bound there with uh, the Antichrist. But after the thousand years is over, then Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. We read in Revelation 20, if you look in verse 10, and the devil who deceived them, the people of this world, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now understand, hell was never created for man. Jesus made it plain that it was created for the devil and his angels. He said in Matthew 25, to the unbelieving world, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so if you die and go to hell, you're going to a place that God never designed for you to go to. It will be your fault, as we will see today, and not his. And so God now is about ready to put the last period upon the last sentence, upon the last paragraph, upon the last page, upon the last book of human history. And he wants us from this judgment called the great white throne judgment to discover and to understand five different aspects of this coming judgment. If you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, the first thing I want us to look at is the place of judgment. Let's first think about the place of judgment. We are told now in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. We are now approaching the end of all things where God's people will enter into the eternal state forever and ever and ever, and the lost into the lake of fire. Time as we know it at this point has come to a conclusion. The bodies of all the lost people of all time have been drawn out of the graves. Their souls that have been in Hades during this time are removed as well. The two are united, and they stand here at the great white throne judgment. In essence, this is the supreme court of the universe, and God Almighty is the supreme judge. And I want you to notice several descriptions of this place. It's called a great white throne Great speaks of the power of this throne, and white speaks of the purity of this throne. The throne of God reflects the purity of God. It is so bright, Isaiah the prophet tells us, that the cherubim need to, the seraphim need to cover themselves. You don't want to stand before this throne. 
And if you are a born-again Christian, you will not be at this throne. As we'll see in a moment, the only people who are present at this throne are the lost people of all the ages. This is the great white throne of God, and it's a terrifying place. It's an awful place. And notice the Scripture says that earth and heaven fled away. It fled away. How so? Because the current heavens and earth, the Bible says, are destined for fire. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told that God burns the universe with fire. And in Revelation 21.1, what we're going to pick up on next week, God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The current heavens and earth will be burned up. And then as 21.1 teaches, a new heaven and a new earth will be created. By the way, there are these Christians today who either teach theistic evolution, that God used the process of evolution to create the world, a clear denial of what God has revealed in Scripture. That's heresy. You cannot be a sound Christian. Tim Keller, who wrote a book on apologetics, I would never allow his book in this church as long as I'm the pastor, because he taught that theistic evolution is a viable alternative. It is not. He is no apologist at all. He is undermining the historicity of Scripture and what Jesus himself said about the creation. But then there are those Christians who hold an old earth theory, who want us to believe that we've been here for millions and millions of years because they want science to fit in with the Bible. And they say, well, between the days or eons of time, and we'll discuss this next week when we come to 21.1, But I tell you, they have a problem because in a moment, not six literal 24-hour days, but in a moment, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He will take no time at all in which to do it. So at this throne, there's no rocks, there's no trees. It's in outer space, so to speak. There's no place to hide. Adam, when he sinned, he, he tried to, in his shame, hide from God, and God comes into the garden. Where are you, Adam? Everything's stable, everything's solid, everything familiar will be gone. No place to hide, it's just face-to-face with God Almighty. That's the place of the judgment. Second, I want us to think about the person over this judgment, the person over the judgment. We're told now in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. John speaks here of him who sat upon it, whose presence is so awesome and so terrifying that earth and heaven fled away. Now, who is this person who is so awesome and terrifying that heaven and earth flee away? Who is this judge upon the bench? Some might think that it's God the Father, but clearly it is not. It is God the Son. It is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You say, how do we know? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In John 5:22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The Apostle Peter, when he was there in Caesarea by the sea, preaching to Cornelius in his home, he told that group, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, talking about Jesus in the context, this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. The Apostle Paul there in Mars Hill in Acts 17 said, Therefore, 
having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This same Christ, who today can be your Savior, if you die without him, you will meet him as judged. Men who have ignored him, who have cursed him, who have used his name in vain, who have blasphemed him, will be face to face with him. Now, we have studied already in the early chapters of the Revelation how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit equally inhabit the throne. But at the throne in heaven, they have various responsibilities. God is one, but each member of the Trinity takes on various aspects of ministry. And this aspect of judgment is principally given to God the Son. And so if you reject Him and you die having ignored Him, you will meet Him. He is the person over the judgment. Now, beyond the place of judgment and the person over the judgment, I want us to think this morning about the people at the judgment. Let's think about the people at the judgment. We read now in verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, how? According to their deeds. Now, I think it's important that we define some terms that John has already covered if we're going to truly understand these verses. There are two kinds of resurrections in the Bible. One is called the first resurrection, also called the resurrection of life. And the other is described as a second, as a later resurrection. And Jesus calls it in John 5, the resurrection of judgment. Drop uh, down to, or up to verse 4 here in chapter 20. Go up to verse 4 for a moment of Revelation 20. And let me refresh your memory with what we've already studied. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. These are tribulation saints. And because they refused to take the mark, the image of the Antichrist, 666, the common way in which they will be executed is by beheading. And then we're told, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. These who come to life initially, this is called the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this concept that some pastors will present to you of one big general revelation, it's usually found in Calvinism and amongst replacement theologians who deny the literal reign of Christ on the earth. They apply a different principle, a different hermeneutic in interpreting prophecy than they do the rest of the Bible. In fact, they apply a different hermeneutic in even the way they interpret the Old Testament prophecy. How was the Old Testament prophecy for Christ's first coming fulfilled? Literally, actually, just like God said. And so because they want to dismiss 
the future reign of Christ because they have a whole system of theology that's built on the fact that the church is the new uh, Israel, so to speak. They think, well, there's just this one big general judgment when people of all time are brought before, and they think that's what's happening, but they haven't read very carefully or studied very hard. On the contrary, the Bible is very clear. There are two resurrections. The first is that of the saved. It leads to blessing. The second, separated by a thousand years, is that of the lost, and it leads to judgment. And we'll see in a moment that no one in the first resurrection will be lost, and no one in the second resurrection will be saved. So we need to ask an important question. If this is the first resurrection, if you've read your Bible at all, then you know there have already been some resurrections that have taken place before this. So in what sense is this the first resurrection? I mean, think about it. Christ, the first fruits, as Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 15, in fitting with the feast of first fruits, there are various feasts in the Old Testament, four in the spring, three in the fall. The three fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled prophetically. But each of the feasts picture what the Messiah is going to accomplish on behalf of the church as well as Israel. And at the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath, we would call that Sunday today, the, the, the priests would be given a single stalk of grain. And it was representative of Jesus, who's the first fruit. He is the first one ever to be raised from the dead. There were people who were raised to life only to die again, but Jesus was the first ever to be resurrected from the dead in a glorified body. And if you remember from Matthew 27, immediately after his resurrection, the Bible says a select number of tombs were opened, and certain Old Testament saints walked around the city of Jerusalem before they are seemingly brought up into heaven. So we already have seen some people raised, not to mention Paul speaks, for we shall not all sleep, and the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink your eye, very, very quickly, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up, rapto in the Latin Bible, and so we use the term rapture. When you, someone says to you, well, the term rapture is not in the Bible, no, it's not, not in the English Bible. Neither is the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a biblical truth. You call it what you want. It's the catching up of the church. It's the rapture. We'll be caught up. We'll meet the Lord in the air. That happens all the way back in chapter 4. Then in Daniel chapter 12, and we've already looked at this earlier in the 20th chapter, Old Testament saints are raised at the end of Jacob's trouble, after the great tribulation, along with what we just read in these two verses in chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, tribulation saints who are beheaded, they too are raised at the second coming. So in what sense is this the first resurrection? Well, clearly, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the focus is not about the time of the resurrection as it is the kind of resurrection. There are two kinds of resurrection, just like there are two kinds of death. There is the first death, which results in burial, and then there is what John describes in our chapter this morning as the second death, which describes someone who's being cast into the lake of fire. Even so, there are two kinds of resurrections. There is the resurrection of the righteous, and there is the resurrection of the wicked. When we continue our message, The Destiny of the Doomed, we'll look further at these two resurrection programs, which are separated by a thousand years. 
to listen again to this or any of the messages in our series on the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order today's message by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV61. Search the Scriptures is a Bible teaching ministry made possible through your prayers and financial support. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the destiny of the doomed. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <laughs>